Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for a special consideration this Sunday is our second lesson, 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 to 16, as printed in your bulletin and already read. Dear men and women of God, maybe you were the one giving instructions or teaching a class on important stuff and found that someone was simply not paying attention, no matter what tricks you tried to get them or keep them focused. Finally, in exasperation, you said, This is serious! Or maybe you were on the other end. A teenager who thinks learning anything is a waste of time. A a bored employee. Part of a group that's just got the giggles. And the instructor had to shout at you, This is serious! You can probably remember the guilt, embarrassment, or shame you felt to be called out in that way, or perhaps the disdain you felt if you didn't think things actually were that serious. But at times, everybody recognizes that those three words signal a need to set everything else aside, prepare for something important, and pay close attention. If the doctor senses that his patient is not going to follow through with the instructions he's giving to to keep the woman healthy or alive, he may tell her, Look, you cannot take this lightly. This is serious. The wife whose husband is distracted or who makes everything a joke Well, she might have to pull him away from his computer or his TV, get him to stop with the the, yes, hmm, yeah, sure, go ahead, yeah, mm mm-hmms, and tell him, honey, I need you to listen to me right now. Something's happened. This is serious. Or it might even be someone teaching to a group that that is paying good attention who wants to let them know what they most need to remember. Don't forget this stuff. This is serious. Paul's instructions to Timothy here at the end of his first letter to him fall mainly in that last category. His young pastor friend was not treating things as a joke and wasn't distracted. But the apostle wanted to make sure that he understood and remembered the deep and lasting importance of what he was telling him. And though Paul doesn't use the words, this is serious here, everything he says here communicates that. None of these are stray thoughts, conversational filler or or things to be put on the back burner or saved for a more convenient time. And what Paul said to Timothy, he says to us as well. When he addresses him as man of God, that's not another title for pastor or missionary or anything. It is simply a reminder to him of his identity in Christ and his relationship with the Lord. 
So in the same way, each of you hearing me right now as a believer is a man of God, a woman of God, or a boy or girl of God. Now how does that happen? How do you become that? It's not your choice or doing. It's all God's. We can no more make ourselves people of God than we can make ourselves dinosaurs. Sure, there might be some desire or sense that it might be a good thing to be a man of God, but we just do not have the ability or capacity to completely change ourselves from one thing into another thing, from sinners bound deservedly for hell to saints bound for heaven. Paul describes what we are like on our own in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked when you followed the ways of this present world. You were following the ruler of the domain of the air, the spirit now at work in the people who disobey. Formerly, we all lived among them in the passions of our sinful flesh, as we carried out the desires of the sinful flesh and its thoughts. Like all the others, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So, no matter how great a Christian you may be right now, you started in the same place we all start, as objects of God's anger at our disobedience and evil. Because every one of us breaks His commands and does what he or she wants instead of what our Creator wills. The price of that disobedience and disrespect is death and damnation, and along with it is disability. We are without any way to please God, any way to make up for our sin, to convince the judge of all that he should give us a break, or to in any way escape eternal death and merit eternal life on our own. But what we could never do for ourselves, God determined to do for us. Paul continues in Ephesians 2, But God, because He is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. He also raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did this so that in the coming ages he might demonstrate the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. This is what we are. This is what the Lord has made us. This is what His love has transformed us into. Sinners saved by His amazing, unlimited, and unconditional grace. We belong to Him by faith, which is itself His gift to us. He called us by His gospel washed and claimed us in baptism, 
announces his love and forgiveness in his word and in absolution and conveys his greatest gifts to us in the Lord's Supper, all while strengthening and guiding us as his beloved children, as men, women, boys and girls of God. And as we just heard there in Ephesians 2, we were created in Christ Jesus for something. Good works. That we would walk in them. Meaning that they would characterize all of our life and behavior. Which is what Paul, back in our text, is telling Timothy and telling us about the way we live. With the reminder of identity, man of God, the apostle makes clear that this is serious. There is a right direction and a wrong direction for a Christian to go. When he says, flee from these things, he is telling us to turn away permanently, consistently, repeatedly, to turn away from the evil and ungodly things of the world and the flesh. In the verses before this, Paul warned specifically against false doctrine, discontent, and striving after money. If he were writing to us today, he might add cautions against things like rage, selfishness, impatience, pettiness, score-settling, laziness, and self-indulgence. These things, and so many more, lead us toward death and the devil, hardly what should characterize the people of God. So instead, Paul says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Go God's direction. Make these virtues the things that demonstrate your identity. It is not just being nice or behaving well when you think others are paying attention. No, this is serious. More than we might ever work toward success in our careers or work toward wealth or recognition or even just satisfaction, as men and women of God, we work to live according to God's standards, to not only show but to have His love for others, to stand firm yet grow in faith, to keep moving forward in holiness and service, and to replace all harshness and anger with gentleness. But there is no pretending that living this way will be a walk in the park. We heard Jesus in our gospel today speaking seriously of the costs and consequences of following him. And so we should understand why Paul here tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Living as a Christian is always going to be a struggle. A struggle against the desires of our sinful flesh. A struggle against the temptations of Satan. And a struggle against the pushing and pulling of the godless world we live in. Imagine living in a, a coastal village in England in the ninth century when a band of Vikings runs at you with swords drawn. Woods saying, sorry guys, I just don't feel like fighting today. Stop them? Of course not. 
they would take whatever they wanted, do whatever they wanted, and probably kill or at least enslave you too. In the same way, to not fight the good fight of faith is to give ground to or even give in to the enemies of our souls. This is serious. Which is why the Apostle also says to take hold of eternal life. You know, I do not get the impression, the sense that many Christians in our culture think all that much about eternal life. Paul here presents it as something to to get a grip on and not let go of. The knowledge that we are not living for this world only, but for an everlasting world to come, should transform and, and energize our daily lives. On the one hand, it reminds us to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven and strangers to sinful society. And on the other hand, it helps us face danger and discomfort, confident that nothing that happens to us can interfere with, only speed up, our living forever in bliss and joy with Jesus our Savior. That, that is what you men and women of God. That is what you were called to, and that is the faith and certainty that you have confessed numerous times and and will again. We have Christ himself as our example and guide in this. Standing on trial before Pontius Pilate, Jesus could have denied who he was, could have made excuses, could have kept silent about the truth or lied to avoid it, all to save his skin. But he would not. Before the man who had the power to sentence him to death, knowing what it would cost, Christ still confessed and gave witness. So, if eternal life is a big deal, and your confession of faith is a big deal, the one whom you confess and the one who won you eternal life will be an even bigger deal. So Paul wants us to understand that he is not merely giving human advice here to take or leave as we see fit. He charges us in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus that you keep this command. You know, sometimes Christians forget that the rules and standards for life that they have been given and taught are not the hang-ups of their parents, not the obsessions of their pastors, and not the outdated ideas of a backward church, but are actually, in truth, the words and will of their Creator and Lord who gave them their life and soul and can send them to hell or heaven. So yeah, the commands that we have here and throughout the Bible, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, these are all given seriously and meant to be taken seriously. And not just sometime, in the distant and indeterminate future when it's more convenient. No, Paul also points us here to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
to remind us that the King of kings and Lord of lords who rules all things could return to us at any moment, which is the best news ever for those who will greet him with faith and the worst news possible for those who are not ready and remain in their sin. If we fight with the end in sight, if we remain faithful and keep working at all we have been called to be and do, we will not lose our grip on the cross and all that awaits us in heaven. But it will not be to our credit or glory. After describing our Savior with great praise and deep truths, Paul says, to Him be honor and power forever. The things we do, we do not because we are great, but because our Lord and Savior is great. The blessings that we have and are promised are not rewards for our goodness or works, but are priceless and entirely undeserved gifts from our gracious God, who did everything to save us from our sins so that we could be His people. So no. We neither give ourselves credit for being Christians, nor give to anyone or anything other than the Lord the respect and devotion that is due only to Him. We give it not to a parent or a movement, not to a politician or a purpose, not to any merely human idea, principle, goal, figure, boss, hero, or cause. To Christ be honor and power forever. Lots of people take a break in the summer. Some Christians even decide to take a break from their faith in the summer. They skip worship. They stop reading their Bibles. They, they maybe even stop thinking about how God wants them to live when there is so much living to do with beaches, bars, and barbecues beckoning them to come, let their hair down, and just have some fun. But being a man or woman of God is not a job or a duty. It's an identity. So it is not something that we take a break from or sit back and take for granted. Henry Light, the, the author of the next two hymns that we will sing today, coined the phrase, it's better to wear out than to rust out. That's a good reminder for us of how Christians live. So we keep on keeping on with the power that the Lord gives us through the Gospel. We keep on fleeing what is evil and ungodly. Keep on pursuing all that is good and godly. We keep on fighting the good fight. Keep on confessing our hope and confidence. And keep on keeping without spot and without fault. Keeping our faith, our calling, and our eternal destiny. Knowing, knowing that soon our Savior will appear to judge the world and take us home. It is work, but it is all joy because of the grace of God who gives it and because of what awaits us. So we do not ever want to forget this is serious. Amen.
Please rise. Now to the King eternal, to the immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.